It was a number of years ago, 1983 to 1987, that I, Jeff McMullen, had the opportunity to play the character of Ronald McDonald for the McDonald's Corporation. My marketplace covered most of Arizona and a portion of Southern California. One of the greatest standard events was Ronald Day. So one day each month, we would visit as many of the community hospitals as possible, bringing a little happiness into a place where no one ever looks forward to going. I was very proud to be able to make a difference for children and adults who were experiencing some really down time. The difference for children and adults who were experiencing the same down time, the warmth and gratification that I would receive stayed with me for weeks. I loved the project. McDonald's loved the project. The kids and the adults loved it. And so did the nursing and the hospital staffs. There were two restrictions placed on me during a visit. First, I could not go anywhere in the hospital without McDonald's personnel and my handlers, as well as hospital personnel. That way, if I were to walk into a room and frighten a child, there was someone there to address the issue immediately. And second, I could not physically touch anyone within the hospital. They did not want me transferring any germs from one patient to another. I understood why they had this don't touch rule, but I didn't like it. I believe that touching is one of the most honest forms of communication that humans will ever know. Printed and spoken words can lie. It is impossible to lie with a warm hug. Breaking either of these rules, I was told, meant I could lose my job. I'll come back to that story in just a moment. Matthew chapter 25, verse 1 says this, Jesus is talking He's, he's, he's in the last hours of his earthly ministry, so he's doing some significant teaching here, the last days of his ministry. Uh, chapter 25, verse 1 says this, and the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. Now, move beyond that because that's a great parable that Jesus tells that talks about being ready for his coming back or meeting him. If you would skip down to verse 14, where he tells another parable on the heels of that. He says this, for it is like a man who's going on a journey. He called his own slaves and he turned over his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents and to another two and to another one, one. He gave to each according to his own ability. Key phrase there. Then he went on a journey. And immediately the man who had received five talents went out and put them to work and earned five more. In the same way that the man earned two, he earned two, was given two, he earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's goods. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and he settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached and presented five more talents, and he said, Master, you gave me five talents. Look, I've earned five more talents. Well, his master said to him, well done, that good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. His master said to excuse me, master, you gave me five talents. Look, I've earned five more. His master said to him, well done, that good and faithful servant. I'll put you over many things. And then get this, I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. Then the man with two talents also approached, and he said, Master, you gave me two talents. Look, I've earned two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter and share your master's joy. Well, then the man who had received one talent also approached, and he said, Master, I know you. You're a difficult man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. Basically saying, we're doing the work and you're gaining from it. Well, so I was afraid. I went off and I hid your talent in the ground. Look, you have what is yours. But this master, but his master replied to him, he said, you evil, lazy servant. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you would have deposited my money with the bankers. But he's basically doing, he's saying, you really weren't afraid. Because if you really were afraid, you knew this time was coming and you would have done something. At the very least, you would have thrown it in the bank for a little bit of interest. And when I returned, I would have received my money back with 
interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even though he has, what he has will be taken away from him. What we see here is the thing that most of us probably don't like is that the rich get richer. But it's almost a kingdom principle when it comes to how we use what God's given us. And he says, and throw the good-for-nothing servant into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This story is about a master who called his servants, and he entrusted all of his possessions to them. He gave them talents, which in this story represented monetary sum. Uh, We learn later in this passage that the master was giving the servants really some financial accounts. And they were simply becoming his account managers for his goods. They were stewarding over it. He uh, he asked them to be wise and to be faithful what what he entrusted to them. And we see here, one guy received five talents. Another servant was given two talents. Another servant was given one talent. But one of the key statements there that we highlighted as you read is according to each of their ability. And then the master, he ends up leaving on a long-term journey. This was a wise and discerning leader, wasn't he? Because he gave each one of these guys what he knew they could handle. He was able to look at their life experience, their track record, their capabilities and gifts, and discern that, okay, this, this person here, he can, he can handle five. He didn't give them too much to overwhelm them. He didn't give them too little to under-challenge them. He gave them not necessarily what they thought they could handle, but he gave them what he knew they could handle. There's an interesting scripture. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Paul's talking to the church at Corinth, and he says, listen, God has given me authority over you, and what you need to know is that God has given everybody a lot, a space, an area to, 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 to live in and to do ministry in and to do life in. And he says, everybody's been given a lot. And Paul says, I live in that lot of life that God's given me. I don't go beyond it. See, so many people in ministry, so many churches, so many pastors, so many individuals in business, you know where they go wrong? Is they get a little greedy or they get a little bit bigger than where they should be and they try and go beyond really the circumference of what God has established for them. And they try and do more. See, God knows what every one of us in this room and out in the world can handle. He will never give you too much to do, but he will always challenge you with what he gives you to do. This is what what Jesus does with us. In this passage, Jesus is talking. The first verse that I read was it says, the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus is trying to teach all of his disciples and all of the people within the, under his voice what the kingdom of heaven is about. Now, hear me. As I talk about this, we're talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are interchangeable terms. He is not talking about literally heaven that we're going to get to go to. He's talking about the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 17, verse 21 says, as Jesus is talking to the scribes and Pharisees, they're looking, and the people, the disciples, they're looking for the manifestation of the kingdom of God to come. And that's part of the problem that these people had is because they kept expecting Jesus to bring this kingdom that was physical. And Jesus is trying to teach them, no, 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 no. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, same meaning, is the rule and reign. Wherever there is a king, there is a kingdom. And Jesus says, I was with you. Luke chapter 17, verse 21. Therefore, look around. The kingdom of God is all around you. So I want you to understand that as we talk about this, this isn't pie in the sky, gone to glory heaven stuff. This is about terra firma, present tense, here and now. So Jesus He tells this parable. Well, what's a parable? Very simply, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning or spiritual application. Jesus was the consummate storyteller. And whenever he would tell a story, what would he do? It would always be about something that those people were clear on and they would fully understand. See, if if I tell a story about sports, 
many of the men in here would understand the analogy or the metaphor that I would draw from. Back in that day, they wouldn't. So when Jesus tells his parables, those people were fully understanding of what it was, even though we may not be. But it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning or spiritual application. And he's talking to this nobleman, this, this leader of people, who goes on this long journey. And hear me, what it really is, it's a picture of Jesus Christ himself, who is getting ready to leave this earth and to be executed, die on a cross for our sins. And the very thing that he is saying, he's pointing it to him. And he's saying, I'm going to leave. And I am giving you heavenly assignments and an agenda for earth. So that you are the people, we are the people, they were the people that can make a difference on this earth. And he says, you have assignments, you have agendas that come from heaven. And I want you to live them out because I'm going to come back someday and guess what? There's going to be a day of reckoning. You're going to be accountable for what I've called you to do. And see, based on what the scripture says, loved ones, is there's so many scriptures that I didn't even, I'm not even going to bother listing them out today. But every Christ follower, everyone that signs up for this thing following Jesus has a purpose. God has purposes for you. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that before you were even born, God prepared good works for you to enter into and to do. And Jesus here is very clear that he is asking us, he's asking me, he's asking you to invest your life into the greatest mission that the earth will ever see, the only eternal thing besides people and uh, the Bible is his church and touching people out there as well as ministering in here. Because there's two parts that when I talk about this, I don't want you to confuse them. Confuse them. We believe that everybody in this room has a mission. What's the mission? It's be Jesus' hands extended wherever you are, to your family, in your school, at your work, in your neighborhood. You are his life wherever you go. And you will either make Jesus bigger and better and grander, or you will diminish how people see him. And it happens out there in the commerce of life where you show Jesus to people. That's your mission. When you leave here today and you go to work tomorrow, you should be getting up in the morning and saying, Lord Jesus, I don't know how, but help me show you to them. And that doesn't mean you stand up on a soapbox, get out your 10-pound Bible and start preaching. It just means you live with a sense of understanding that your life is speaking much louder than your words. That's your mission out there. But then there's also ministry in here. It's where you share your giftings and your abilities in the church to serve others, to make this place a place where Christ can work and reach others who need to encounter Jesus. Remember last week when I told our, our new members that once you come and you become a member, you lose all your privileges? Yeah, you, you, you shouldn't be taking the best parking spots. You shouldn't be taking the last cup of coffee. You shouldn't be uh, taking the best seats, which are right here up front, you know. And uh, actually, no, the members probably should because nobody else wants to sit up front. But you lose your privileges because now you're a servant of the Most High God to be able to serve people coming in so they see the life of Jesus being manifest. I remember uh, reading about Corey Tinboom, who uh, many of us may know, or some of us may know, that she was uh, taken um, captive and hidden in a home uh, during the Nazi regime and um, was taken in by a family. And one time she was asked by some news people, she goes, Corey, how do you stay so humble? You do all these great things for God and, and everybody builds you up and blesses you and speaks great words to you. How do you stay so humble? And she was an elderly woman at this time, so you have to see that. But in her little understated way, she said, do you remember the story of when Jesus came into Jerusalem before he died? And people had their palm leaves out and they were singing, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king. 
And they were clapping and they were applauding. And he comes in on that dog. Do you remember that story? Oh, yeah, yeah, we've heard that. She goes, do you think for one moment that donkey thought that was for him? (laughs) And she said, I know that I am simply a donkey that gets to ride Jesus in to wherever I go. And can I tell you something, loved ones? That's what service is. See, it's not about me. It's not about you. When people come through those doors... All we, the reason we are so strong on serving and, and taking care of people, it isn't so we're some kind of spiffy, neat church. It's so that we simply make it possible for people to see Jesus because we're not seen, but we're just helping them come in. And that's our ministry. That's part of what we do. We bring them in. Nowhere in the New Testament is a Christ follower exempt from serving. Let let that seep into your soul just a little bit. See, Jesus' mission statement, one of them, he came to seek and to save the lost. But he said in Mark 10, 44, I did not come to be served, but to serve. Do you want to be like Jesus? Can I tell you something? I don't believe you can be like Jesus fully until you learn to serve. See, without us being involved in the mission and ministry of Jesus, nothing in community in this world will ever change. Because we serve a big God, I wonder if some of you are not experiencing some challenges in your life because God wants to move you toward him and to be more of a servant. How many of us are sitting in here that have maybe been here for years? And we haven't ever done one thing. You haven't utilized what God has deposited into your wonderful life. Well, this manager, he comes and he sells accounts. And we see here that each person was given different amounts, one five, one two, one one. And this spoke of the variety. This speaks, listen, of the variety of gifts and ministries given to each person. Now, there's, a, there's, a, there's almost a parallel parable that was told uh, just a couple of days later in Luke chapter 19. It's called the parable of the pounds. Now, what's interesting about this, a lot of the language and a lot of the focus is the same. The key difference is this. This parable that I'm reading about today talks about the, de- the, 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 the distinguishing and amounts of gifts that we are given. In Luke 19, it talks about one thing. The idea is everybody is given one life. Use it. And in that passage in Luke 19, Jesus tells those people as he's talking to me, he says, you do business until I come. It doesn't say it in here. But obviously, it is a clear reference as he says, take care of my accounts because I'm coming back. As he's basically saying to them, you do business until I come. See, loved ones, we all have one life. And it's been allotted to us by this great God who fills our lungs physically and spiritually. And he says, I want you to do business until I come. Hear me, this is, sometimes we forget this. If I said, well, what's the ultimate goal in God's economy for the church and for your life? Most of us would say, well, I think the ultimate goal is that we understand we're sinners, we need Jesus, and Jesus loves us so much he died for us so that we could have a better life here and be in eternity with him. I mean, if if, if we just boiled it down, a lot of us would say that. Can I tell you something? If the ultimate is heaven, then why wouldn't Jesus, when we become Christ followers, just beam us up? I mean, just take us out. Okay, let's get him into heaven before he makes too much of a mess of everything else, you know? No, you know why he does that? Because he's created you for good works. So that you can begin to share his life with other people. That's our purpose. We live for him. 
So we see this nobleman returns. He gives one guy five talents uh, because he was faithful with the five. The second person was faithful with two talents. He gives him two more. But this last guy dug a hole. He buried the master's money. He, really, the picture is he buried his life. He didn't do anything with it. Why would someone do that? See, two of them went into the marketplace. They did commerce. They exchanged life, and, and they did what the master intended them to do, to grow and to build the accounts with their life. One didn't. He buried it. Why would someone not invest what Christ has given them? Why would they bury what had been entrusted with them for their growth, personal growth for the sake of others, and ultimately to bring glory to Jesus Christ? This passage gives us some insight. Notice in verse 19, it says, Now after a long time, the master returned to settle accounts with them. He's coming back. Never forget, loved ones. And sometimes we forget about this. Jesus is coming back. If, either, either we're going to meet him when we die, or he's going to come back for us. Either way, we're going to get to stand before him face to face and literally give an accounting for our life. Notice what Jesus does here. Did you notice the words in verses 20 and 20 through 23? They're the same to the two servants who were faithful. Exactly the same. Word for word, the same affirmation. What do we learn from that? Jesus doesn't say, well done, thou good and fruitful servant. He says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have taken care of what I have given you. What Jesus is, is, uh, is affirming and praising here is the character of the servant, not first and foremost the character, the, the, uh, the, the servant's production. And notice he didn't give the one that had five versus the one that two. He didn't give him more praise. He simply said, great job. You did what I asked you to do. See, both of them were faithful with what God gave them and what they were supposed to do. Now hear me. Because I deal with this a lot with churches. Fruit is important. And if something isn't producing fruit, well, then you've got to go, well, what's wrong? Because we're called to be fruit bearers, John 15. If we're abiding in Christ, there's going to be fruit. But before Jesus gets to the fruit, he always deals with the faithfulness. Because usually if you're being faithful to what God's given you, chances are you're going to be fruitful. But why would somebody do nothing? What exists in our lives to keep us from being faithful that would lead to fruitfulness? It's true. I know, I know for me sometimes I get, and I'll tell a little bit of personal stuff, but sometimes it's hard for me as a pastor to sit here and look at all, you know, get all these mails. Hey, come now, my church is 10,000. And I'm thinking, yeah, whew. You know, I've just kind of got this little outpost here in Martinez, just trying to slug along, keep the wheels on my life so I can keep this thing, help you get forward and do, you know, hopefully we'll all get into heaven. It's kind of intimidating. But see, God doesn't call me to be a pastor of 10,000. He calls me to be a pastor of Creekside Church. And every day, get up and give it my best. And to be a person who's willing to change, who's willing to grow, Every one of us, loved ones, has been given at least one life to use. Now, while I'm going to be talking a little bit about engaging our gifts for Christ on the second part of this, you can make broader application to every area of your life. You can make it to your job. You can make it to your life, to your marriage. That God has given you gifts, capabilities, enablements to be a growing person that can make a change in your home, in your marriage, in your work. The problem is a lot of us don't do it. Why? Oh, well, you know, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty happy, pretty settled, pretty, you know, pretty, pretty content, pretty satisfied, pretty good. <laughs> and you know what? That's the enemy of becoming great. That's why so many marriages fail is because one wants to change, grow, move forward. And the other one says, well, four, that's work. Why would I want to do that? I don't need to change. Really? So you can make some unilateral applications, but I want you to notice Jesus' words to the servant. I love the gentle Jesus. He says, you're lazy. ha. <laughs> Oh, I didn't want to use that word this morning, but it's there. 
See, hear me, loved ones. Life isn't all about you. Your life is not all about you when you sign up for Jesus. Your money isn't all yours. Your life is about Jesus. Can I tell you, that's what holds people back in marriage, in life, in business, in work, in every area. Because you think it's all about you. And you live for you instead of living for the people that God has given around you to grow and to build and to use your authority to bless and to build up. How many times do I deal with people in their marriage? They live in total and total complete denial until something major and cataclysmic happens and then they are faced with the reality and so often what I see is it is too late. The person said, I've been telling you this for 20 stinking years. I'm done. People come to ministry, I mean to church, and really all they do is absorb. But they never engage in the life of what Christ is doing to serve and to use what God has given them to invest to serve in the highest stakes game in town. As I said earlier, some of you might have been here for years, but you've really had minimal to zero involvement. Can I tell you what the Bible would say today? Very lovingly, but straight, you, you buried your gifts. You buried your life. Oh, but pastor, you know, I do a lot out there. Good, good, you should be. But you also have a responsibility here. Because what, whatever we do here, while it is to build up the saints, it's also to be a rest home for the sinner. Or excuse me, a hospital for the sinner, not simply a rest home for the saints. Some of you would say, I wonder, oh, I'm poor pastor, I don't feel like I'm growing. Could you just teach a little deeper? <laughs> Can I tell you something? Today's about as deep as it gets. You know why? Because, listen, a lot of people are like sponges. What happens when a sponge gets fully absorbed and full? It can't receive any more. The Christian church in the United States, loved ones, is a sponge. We have so many great teachers and so much great teaching, and we want more, more, more. Let me sit around and get more teaching. Can I tell you what the two things that would be the most important thing for you to do personally? Number one, set up your own devotional life where you're hearing from God, number one. And then number two, you find a way to serve and to give of your life. Because some of us just simply need to be wrung out so God can refill us. That's why you'll hear it all the time around here. At Creekside, our sending and surface, uh, serving capacity is much more important than our seating capacity. And I'll just tell you, if you don't know this, there's a lot of better preachers in this East Bay than me. And if you want really great preaching, go. I release you. I'm not that good. But... I will challenge you to hear the word and then to do something with it. Because listen, I want a big church. I want a bigger church. Not because I want, oh boy, big church. Because I want people that are growing. So that as we start churches, we can send more people out. And start with great churches that are already established because of great people that are doing what God is speaking to them. Oh, pastor, you're so humble. No, I'm not. I know, can I tell you what? I'm a, I'm, 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 a, I'm a gift and a half person. I know that. And I can live with that for the first time in my life in about the last five years. I'm good with that. Because what happens is if you don't understand how God's gifted you and you can become comfortable in who you are in Christ Jesus, he says this, not only will, you, not only will laziness be an issue, but you'll live in fear. Jesus knows something that I hear so often from people about ministry. Oh, I'm afraid I'll fail. I'm fearful. What if someone asks a question, I can't answer it? What if I don't know the answer? Happens to me all the time. You know what I do now? I'm the pastor. I don't know, but I'll try and find out for you, okay? Give me about, you know, a couple days. There's nothing wrong with that. The longer I've been in this gig, the longer, the more I realize I really don't get this whole thing. I'm working harder now than I ever have. <laughs> 
It's not fair, but it's the way it is. Now, what if I mess something up? Been there, done that. <laughs> Welcome to my world. I still don't know why people come. <laughs> I mean, really. And, and, and I just, you know, and I have this reoccurring dream. I think I told you. So I'm going to come here some Sunday morning. Everybody's going to be gone. It's, 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 well, you know why? Because I'm afraid of failing. But see, the fear of failure prevents us from ever trying something or we may not give it our best because what if something goes wrong then I won't have an excuse. But if I don't give it my all, I can just say, well, I never gave it my all. January 29th, 1992. Came here that weekend. I was voted in. This is the interesting thing. I think I've only told a few people this. I was teaching school, so I had to get back. They had a Sunday night service. They were going to vote afterwards. So I did the Sunday night preaching, and I knew, I just knew this church was going to vote me in. And I, I, I said, honey, let's go. We've got to get our kids home. I've got to get ready for school tomorrow. But see, you know the real reason why I left? I wanted to drive that hour and 15 minutes home and seek God to say, God, I don't think I want to go there. Well, why would you come? Because well, I, I started to understand some things that, you know, financially it wasn't real strong at that time in some areas. And can I tell you what my fear was? This is, the, this, this is I was afraid that if I went there, I was 34, I'd really never been a senior pastor, and I thought, what if this place goes belly up? What if I'm the dude that has to close the doors because I can't do it? And so I didn't want to have to sit there in that room, the little multi-purpose room, and they come in and say, well, you've been voted in 39 to 1. And that's what my vote was. I wonder if that one person is still here. <laughs> I, I asked everybody if they knew who it was. and Not me, Pastor. Not me. I voted for you. See, that's why I don't feel really good about myself. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out who that one was. But I didn't want to stand there that night and have people go, well, you're coming, aren't you? Because I, I, I was scared. But then the next day, I talked, I think, to a couple people, and I said, yeah, I'll go. And man, the last 21 years has been some of the best times of my life. I mean, look at this. I walk up here in the morning. I'm not kidding you how many times I think I'm coming up at, you know, 7.30 in the morning. There's more cars here at 7.30 than there was for a whole service back in 1992 sometimes. I said, God, how, how, how could you bless this way? And see, this is what I'm learning about fear. Is courage isn't the absence of fear, but it's the faith and the ability to move beyond those fears. And most of us in this room, I'll tell you, it's for me, I have just an ounce more faith and courage than I do fear. No, pastor? Oh, it's just so easy for you. Are you kidding me? I am nervous every Sunday. Now, I've learned how to manage it differently, but this is not an easy thing for me to do. Because part of it is, is that it's been a lifelong issue for me. I grew up with a lot of fears around my inadequacies because of a lack of parenting, not having a mother for most of my life. Didn't have a strong figure, father figure at all. He was seldom there. I basically, in many ways, raised myself. So I know full well about all the fears and inadequacies that can hold people back. I didn't have a man that called the man out of this little boy. I went to Bible college literally to be with my friend and play basketball with him, who was a pastor's son in the church that I finally got saved in. I just said, Lord, you know what? I'll go. I want to play basketball, travel, pick up some credits. And amazingly, that summer after my first year, I wasn't even sure I was going to go back, but God used me for three weeks at a youth camp to just minister to kids. And I started feeling this, wow, I can do this thing called ministry, I think. So I went back my sophomore year, then my junior year, 
in my senior year. What's really funny is, and, and you think I'm really exaggerating this, but I don't think, I think there's like only two profs in that school that ever thought I'd go into ministry. One of them was this little librarian. Her name was Lola Brown. She was like 95 when I was there, and I think she's still alive, but she was the sweetest thing. There's a few people that just really liked me. I think they felt sorry for me. One day, I was just really fed up with Bible college because I couldn't stand all the uh, fake spirituality because I hadn't learned that yet. You know, I, I, I didn't know that, you know, oh, bless God, hallelujah, or hallelujah, or whatever they said, and that just, it bugged me. And I was just tired of it. I was going to quit. And, and I'm walking out of the library. And Lola Brown, she comes up to me. And she just looks at me. She's, you know, she's about four foot one. And she looks at me. She goes, Terry, I, I just can't wait to see what God's going to do with you in ministry. And I go, go eat a bag of worms, you know? <laughs> I, no, I didn't say that. I really loved her. I just thought it. Because I thought, you know something? This is, this is really weird to me. Because I had just come from kind of getting saved in a church, and I didn't know all the junk that is, quote, supposed to be spiritual stuff. And all of the, and so I would sit in the back row in chapels, and I did really good in my studies, but nobody saw me up there hopping and hollering and jumping around and being, doing all the spiritual stuff. And what's interesting is, is most of the professors just thought I was there to play basketball. Well, that's what got me there. But that little bit of talent or gift that I had, guess what? God used that to get me through. And this may sound bragging, maybe it is, but I was the first guy hired in my class. As a matter of fact, I am the only person that in my grad, starting and graduating class that's still in full-time ministry, and I would have been the least likely to succeed. Can I tell you something? It's because of God. It's because Jesus said, for whatever reason, I'm going to take this kid and, and I'm going to break through his fears. I'm going to break through the fears that he had growing up, thinking he could never stand in front of people other than maybe a classroom of 30 students. And somehow I'm going to give him this ability, this, this divine enablement. I'm going to call it out of him if nobody else did. See, some of us loved ones, we live with the fear of failure and it can prevent people from investing in what God's given you. You hide your talent, you bury it. Some of us, it's the fear of rejection can do the same thing. I hate being rejected. But some of you have been hurt, rejected, your family history, a wound you carry in your heart has become a roadblock from you stepping up and saying, I can do this in the power of Christ Jesus. See, God doesn't call the qualified. He calls the ones he qualifies. That's what happened to me. Some of us have fear of intimacy. I've known people who have wanted relationships so bad, but then when they get involved in a relationship, they don't share their true selves because of fear of getting close and being rejected and hurt. So what do they do? It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Their greatest fear of being alone happens because they can't get close to people. Same thing in the church. That's why some people have a hard time with tables. They want to come in, and they want to get out as quickly as they can. And hear me, loved ones. Jesus never saw church that way. Loved ones, fear will cut us off from God's purposes being worked out in our lives. And listen, I just want to tell you, some of you need to step up and step out and risk because God's blessed you with a lot more than you ever thought you had. But you'll never know it because you're buried. And some of you stay buried in this room. Listen to this, back to the story. Toward the end of my fourth year of Ronald days, I was heading down a hallway after a long day in grease paint and on my way home when I heard this little voice, Ronald, Ronald. I stopped and the little voice was coming through a half-open door. I pushed the door open and saw a young boy about five years old. He was lying in his daddy's arms. He was hooked up to more medical equipment than I'd ever seen. His mommy was on the other side along with grandma, grandpa, and the nurse attending to the equipment. I knew by the feeling in the room that the situation was grave. I asked the little boy his name. He told me it was Billy. 
And I entertained him briefly doing my Ronald McDonald stuff. And as I stepped back to say goodbye, I asked Billy if there was anything else that I could do for him. And he looked at me and he said, Ronald, would you hold me? Such a simple request. But what ran through my mind was that if I touched him, I could lose my job. So I told Billy that I could not do that right now. But I suggested that he and I color a picture. So upon completing a wonderful piece of art that we were both so very proud of, Billy again asked me to hold him. By this time, my heart was screaming, yes, do it. But my mind was screaming louder, no, you're going to lose your job. The second time that Billy asked me, I had to ponder, why could I not grant the simple request of a little boy who probably would not be going home? I asked myself why I was being logically and emotionally torn apart by someone I had never seen before and probably would never see again. Hold me. It was such a simple request. And yet, I searched for any reasonable response that would allow me to leave. I could not come up with a single one. It took me a moment to realize that in this situation, losing my job may not be the disaster that I feared. Was losing my job the worst thing in the world? Did I have enough self-belief that if I did lose my job, I'd be able to pick up and start over again? The answer was a loud, bold, affirming, yes, I could pick up and start again. So what was the risk? Well, just that if I lost my job, it probably would not be long before I'd lose my first car and then my home. And to be honest with you, I really liked those things. But I realized that at the end of my life, the car would have no value and neither would the house. The only thing that had steadfast value were experiences. And once I reminded myself that the real reason I was there was to bring a, a sliver, a shaft, a little bit of happiness to an unhappy environment, I realized that I really faced no risk at all. I sent mom, dad, grandma, and grandpa out of the room and my two McDonald escorts to the van. The nurse tending the medical equipment stayed, but Billy asked her to stand and to face the corner. Then I picked up this little wonder of a human being. He was so frail and so scared. We laughed and cried for 45 minutes and talked about the things that worried him. Billy was afraid that his little brother might get lost coming home from kindergarten next year. Without his big brother, Billy, to show him the way. He worried that his dog wouldn't get another bone because he had hidden the bones in the house before going back to the hospital. And now he couldn't remember where he put him. These are problems to a little boy who knows he is not going home. On my way out of the room with tear-streaked makeup running down my neck, I gave mom and dad my real name and phone number. Another automatic dismissal for a Ronald McDonald but I figured that I was already gone and had nothing else to lose. And I said, if there's anything the McDonald's Corporation or I could do to give me a call and consider it done. Less than 48 hours later, I received a phone call from Billy's mama. She informed me that Billy had passed away. She and her husband simply wanted to thank me for making a difference in their little boy's life. Billy's mom told me that shortly after I left the room, Billy looked at her and said, Mama, I don't care anymore if I see Santa this year because I just got to spend time with Ronald McDonald. Uh, sometimes we must do what is right for the moment regardless of the perceived risk. Only experiences have value and the one biggest reason people limit their experiences is because of the risk involved. For the record, McDonald's did find out about Billy and me, but uh, given the circumstances permitted me to retain my job and I continued as a Ronald McDonald for another year. I quit to begin to go around and to share the story of me and Billy. Risk. You read Luke 19, loved ones. Can I tell you what Jesus says? The idea is risk. How are you, what are you risking with your life for the cause of Christ's call and kingdom? We're entering a new season here, Creekside. We're growing probably, generally it seems like more than we've grown before. God always calls us to a higher calling, His. And I want to challenge every one of you today, loved ones, that God has given you 
a gifting. And some of you are burying it. Let me close with three things, and we'll be, i got to get out, get you out of here. Go back to the text. Number one, when you serve, you'll get to experience the joy of Jesus in your life. We're not referring to heaven one day. We're referring to it right now. Notice what the Scripture says. Enter into the joy of your master. It's not about happiness based on outward experiences. It's about joy that comes from serving the life of Christ. Psalm 1611 says there is joy in God's presence and in his right hand are pleasures forever. When you serve Christ, guess what? It will bring joy to your life. I've told this story three or four times. I read in psychology today years ago, and I've got to tell you again. They say that one of the reasons that there's, and I don't want to be simplistic here, but one reason, not the reason, one reason that people suffer so much depression in the United States today is because of our busy lives, and we're so self-centered, self-focused, and self-set on things. Decades ago, people used to uh, canned together. They used to raise barns together. They used to do meals together. They used to do life together. They used to serve together. That doesn't happen anymore. And this article in Psychology Today said that the reason that, there's, that, that, that we cannot experience the joy that our, a lot of our ancestors experienced because of the way they served one another. And he says when you serve, literally there's an endorphin that is released in your mind. And most of us understand that. When you've served and done something, you may be tired, you may be burnt out, but you leave and you go, wow, I feel good about that. Well, that's psychology today. God's word says you'll experience joy in the master. Uh, secondly, this is the way to go deeper. He says, you have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. In other words, because you've been faithful with the tasks I've given you, I will increase your leadership, your measure of responsibility, and your spiritual authority for the sake of building others up. See, people say, I want to go deeper in the things of God. And we believe that it happens when we become more knowledgeable of the Bible. And that is important. But see, James brings us back and he says, be a hearer and then be a doer. Most of us, not everybody in this room, but most of us, we have a lot more knowledge than we do. Our knowledge far exceeds how we live. And see, there's a danger for some of you sitting in this room today. It was almost a danger for me because you think you're just a one-talent person, guess what? I can't sing, I can't dance, I can't preach, can't do a Bible study, can't, can't serve, can't do that, can't do that, can't do that. Guess what you do? You talk yourself out of believing God can do something through you, and you bury your life. This is what I'm learning, and I've learned. The reward for faithful work is what? <laughs> More work. So some of you would go, well, why would I want to do that then? Because it's for Christ, the one who gave his all for you. And the last thing is this. Simply when we, when we do what God's called us to do and live out, we hear these gracious words from the master, well done, thou good and faithful servant. God knows I want to hear that. You know, Terry, you weren't the sharpest knife in the drawer. A couple of fries short of a Happy Meal. But by golly, you worked hard. And you did what I asked you to do. You weren't a mega church. You weren't a mini church. You just, you just did your best there. I can live with that now. And I want to challenge our church. I want you to live with this that God is calling something bigger, greater, and grander out of you than you could ever believe in yourself. Because if it isn't bigger than you, it's probably not God. And I'm a pretty good example of that. So don't give me your excuses. <laughs> Would you stand with me? I don't have any fancy ending. We're over time, just with all the stuff going this morning. 
no apology other than this. I want you to look at me just as we close. Would you look at me, please? I know there's people here. You've been burned out in ministry. And I honor that. And anybody in our church, that we, we work hard to make sure people don't get burned out. But if you are burned out, and I know that sometimes we're in seasons of life where you understand. You just, you say, I don't have another ounce to give. I understand that too. So just take those two things off the table. I understand that. But never forget, loved ones, there comes a time where it is time to re-engage and not to sit back and be a balcony Christian or a courtside Christian. People ask me when I go to sports events, how come, Pastor, you don't get very excited? You know why? Because I've played sports all my life, and I would much rather play and get excited there than to go, oh, boy, woo-hoo. Watching just isn't that much fun for me. I mean, I enjoy it, but it's, it's not the biggest deal. I'd rather play. And can I tell you something? You would rather play in this game here, the highest stakes game in town. Amen? Here's your assignment. Here's your takeaway. Would you pray this week in preparation for next week? What is God saying? What would God have you to do? He's going to call out something bigger than you could ever imagine. God bless you. Have a great day.